Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack, which is already making me hungry. Chris, why is it making me hungry? Uh, Today we have got a good one. We have uh, Mark Ridaway, who is an award-winning writer, editor and publisher. And he's written on food, culture, weather and Marlebone area of London. He currently edits the bi-monthly Market Life magazine and is here to talk to us about his book, Borough Market, Edible Histories. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. This is brilliant. So essentially, uh, you are heavily connected with Borough Market and you've had a wander around and you've been thinking about the ingredients and the history of the ingredients and and not only like how they came to be in Britain, but like how people came to eat them in the first place. So it's a really unique way of looking at food history, right? Yeah, that's right. I think, I think, um, and, and, it, and it's not just, it's not the kind of, but necessarily particularly sort of exotic unusual ingredients either it's the um it's quite mundane everyday things and, and and i think what's what's quite interesting is how little most of us know about how these things that are so kind of central to our daily lives um came to be part of our diets in the first place i, I know when i started doing this i was completely ignorant about 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 so many aspects of uh, of, of food history what it is a really great subject really interesting book and it's affected my shopping bill quite highly this week um, <laughs> what kind of inspired you to write about it well i suppose to um to really to to understand what i was doing here is it's probably worth understanding a little bit about about borough market and and um it's uh, it's history and, and 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 what it's doing now um because I, I i don't know how well you know uh, borough but it's a it, it's a market that's been uh, serving the people of London for pretty close to a thousand years now. Um, so th- there's been a food market around there for, for many, many centuries. Um, for our American listeners and our non-British listeners, it's right next to London Bridge, isn't it? That's right. So it's on the southern end of London Bridge. And, that, and that's, that's why, like, its position at the end of London Bridge is really what defines its history. It was, it was, um, uh, it, it developed because for, 
for hundreds of years since the Romans arrived uh, arrived in Britain. Um, the capital city, London, was was on the north bank of the river, and and the southern the southern bank of the river really was was outside of the city walls, and there was just one bridge going across the river, which was London Bridge. And uh, you know, wherever you get traffic, wherever you get um, wherever you get travellers passing through, you always tend to get um, people gathering to sell things, and uh, and that was no different here. And it, because it was outside outside of London, it was outside of the control of the city authorities. So uh, it was a it was a great place to to start a market, um, and and it, it it kind of grew and evolved over over many centuries. Um, until it reached the point where it was actually becoming a, a bit of a menace to um, to uh, people's access to London. It was it was on the high street and it was blocking it was blocking the road. So uh, in the in the seventeen fifties, it was um, an act through, went through Parliament um, uh, shutting down the market. Um, oh wow! Uh, because <laughs> because because uh, you know it was it was the only route into London from the southern counties. Um, but uh, a, a group of local people um, who relied upon it for their for their food um, got together and bought a little patch of land um, just just off the high street, and uh, and were given permission to start a market there. Um, and it, and it's been in that position off the high street ever since. So it was 1756. It it, it reopened, um, but it but it was it was held in trust for the local parish. It was it. it it, it's um it, it was owned for the public benefit and it continues to be so it's still it's still run by a charitable trust and so it has a it has a purpose that goes beyond just um selling food um now for for since the 19th century for for about 100 years it was a it was a fruit and veg wholesale market and it was serving um it was serving the greengrocers of south london getting getting fruit and veg to them and it was also like because it was next to the river it was a really good place for for tropical fruit to be delivered to from around from around the British Empire, um, but when uh, when the supermarkets started um, started to dominate um, uh, food in in the in the latter half of the twentieth century, um, that kind of distribution model that the the the, the local greengrocers who who would be selling uh, fruit and veg to, to to Londoners began to close down, and and Borough became quite redundant. It became it became quite a depressing place. Um, so by the kind of mid nineties, it was pretty much empty. It was, it was big, empty warehouses. It was a bit dark and depressing. Um, but then in the late nineties, it, it, this renaissance happened and it, and it became, it, um, it kind of evolved into a, a retail market, but one with a real emphasis on, on kind of quality food, food that's been made by people that take a slightly different approach to the kind of mainstream industrialized food production that now dominates supermarkets. Um, and um it's people who who are, who are producing food in a way that's a bit more sustainable that 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 has more emphasis on 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 sort of really high quality food um and i felt that so i've been producing a magazine there for 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 several years um for the market and and those kind of themes of like knowing where your food comes from like understanding what goes into food production was a big part of the magazine and we felt that that um that knowing where your food comes from extends not just to the immediate, like where it where it was made, but 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 how it's got to where it is now. How how food has become industrialized. How food has um, how food has changed over the years. How our diets have changed over the years. So the, the the book began as a began as a column in that magazine with me just uh, taking taking um, 
taking products in the market ingredient by ingredient and 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 really sort of digging back into their past so let's do that um let's start with i i guess tea because we're british and we wouldn't be (laughs) we didn't start by talking about tea so orwell said that it was one of the mainstays of civilization in this country Uh, and i don't think he's wrong because every time something goes wrong or right uh we put the kettle on and we have a cup of tea how did this come about it's it's crazy isn't it it's one of those things so so when we go back to what i was saying about about not really thinking about the food and drink that we have and, and it's kind of historical context i think tea is a brilliant example because because it is so fundamentally british but the fact that it's so fundamentally british is so completely ridiculous if you look at if you look at no that's right so 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 far from being fundamentally british it's fundamentally chinese it was a it's a it a tea is a is a herb that that, that has been grown and drunk in China for, for thousands of years. Um, uh, Japan has a, a, a good claim as well to, to, to being steeped in tea. They, they've been drinking tea in, in, in Japan since about the early ninth century. Um, but that tea came from China initially. So China is the absolute homeland of, of tea. And, uh, and, and obviously nobody in, nobody in Britain had, uh, had, had come across tea um until remarkably recently so it it, it has uh, it has become part of our culture in, in in very short order um and the reasons for that the reasons for that are uh, i guess there's there's many i think i think for, first firstly um it's about uh it was about availability so so the um uh, there was a point in the uh in the uh, in the 17th century, when um, when multiple hot drinks began appearing in in Britain, so so chocolate and mm. and coffee and uh, and tea all, all arrived within within a couple of decades of each other, um, and, and and were all sort of re- like extremely popular really quickly in in sort of um, trendy metropolitan circles. Yeah. Um, so so in in London um, in particular. Uh, people uh, were you know there, there was an exoticism about about these hot drinks um and and so i think that sort of fueled the initial interest um but tea was the one that stuck particularly here and part of the reason is that tea was the one that was uh, that was controlled for the longest by the east india company so so britain had a pretty much a a, a monopoly on on um on access to tea in china um, and so, so tea was 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 more readily available in 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 Britain than those other drinks um, over time. Um, but then, you know, the, the, the I guess the, the the fundamental reason why it was so popular is the, the reason it remains popular today. Like caffeine, imagine a world without caffeine. Imagine having lived in a world without um, caffeine and, and um, caffeine. Yeah, I don't want to imagine a world without caffeine. No, <laughs> you can't and make it. It's one of all disaster controls, like as you said, like oh no, water bills come in. Go have a cup of tea and think about this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Have some tea. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so it, it gives you it gives you that buzz. It gives you that buzz, and it gives you it also. There's something about the the production of tea, and this is you see this in in China and Japan as well, in particular. It wasn't directly inherited, but it, it's something that that I think is fundamental to tea's production because it takes time to brew it. 
there's something social about it. Like there's always been uh, an element of of kind of ceremony about about making tea, and and I think that that's really appealing, um, instantly appealing. So it's quite social. Do you know um, what? One of the, my favourite First World War outbreak accounts is a seven-year-old girl, and literally the only thing she remembered is that her mum was in the wash house doing the washing when they found, and a guy brought a cup of tea over and told her that the Germans had declared war. And her big panic was, oh, my God, where will we get tea from if there's a war? This might be the last couple of years I see. And that was her seven-year-old interpretation of the war, was like, there might be no more cups of tea. And then, then yeah. the sank that ship and they shut the Red Sea and stopped the first tea delivery in 1914. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> horrific, horrific. Um, yeah, I, I get one, one, another thing, I suppose, that, that, that probably wasn't driving... Um, everybody's drink tea but certainly a, a, a sector of society where it was it's like presumed health benefits and and that, and this is something that we see like throughout food history and still today is the um is the way in which food is so often presented as a as like a panacea for for, for health yeah um and, and and tea tea was one of those things there's some hilarious descriptions of its benefits from from its sort of very earliest um, arrivals. There's one I particularly love. There's a guy called Thomas Povey in the 1680s uh, who, who listed, I think it was like 22 benefits, where there are things like um, that it it, uh, it consumes rawness and it vanquisheth heavy dreams and easeth <laughs> the pain of heavy damps. So if, you, if, you're, if your brain ever has heavy damps, then uh, apparently the way, the way to ease it is tea, which, you know, I'm, I'm not going to argue with that, to be perfectly honest, going back to what we were just saying. I've just only remembered uh, Asterix in Britain, where the Rome, when the Romans land and they pick the time when the, um, halfway through the battle, all the Britons go off to make a cup of tea. And <laughs> so. Yeah, that's right. And they end up putting milk in it in the end, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. By accident. But what, so one thing with tea that's worth knowing is like the milk in tea is quite recent. Um, so, so like 19th century before anybody was really putting milk in tea, but sugar in tea was, uh, um was fairly common from the from the beginning particularly because uh uh the chinese generally sold the, the very worst grades of, of of tea to to the british to uh, uh like we developed a love of really quite poor quality tea to be fair um, though you and sugar certainly helps punking the east india company you do don't you yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but to suggest that they got away with they didn't really get away I mean, it's worth knowing with with um, with the East India Company and tea, like the for example, the Opium Wars. I think the name suggests it was a war all about opium. The Opium Wars were, were wars about tea. It was about access to tea. It was about it was about um, the British selling um, Indian opium in in China to get the hard currency to be able to pay for the tea. Um, to, to sell in Britain because because the Chinese weren't prepared to accept second rate Western goods in exchange. They wanted silver, um, and uh, and so the East India Company's very uh, clever ploy for getting enough silver together was to um, was to sell opium in China. Um, so yeah, it's one of the things about about food is that like it, it has that it has that really um, there's that kind of mundane everyday quotidian aspect to it you know people sitting in rooms drinking cups of tea for centuries on end those things that kind of root us to the past but 
food and our, our desire to have certain foods has also driven colonialism and caused wars and um, fed into all sorts of horrors as well that that food somehow manages to be both like have have these um, small small impacts and big impacts simultaneously which I think is quite unique about it which which leads us quite nicely into cinnamon it goes like tea from medicinal uses to conquistadors and um, just in South America doesn't it yeah, it does. Like so, so, so cinnamon's one of those things. Um, uh, so the spice trade is the spice trade is one of the most ancient. Uh, one of the, it's like one of the most ancient causes of like transactional um, processes that in, in the world. Like the the um, spices have been traveling around the world for for millennia, um, and they're um, they're particularly interesting because they tend to be produced in very specific parts of the world mainly mainly in asia and, and the pacific um but they travel really well they can be really well transported so they're, they're and, and and they obviously make food taste amazing and they make things smell amazing so they've been they're kind of fueled trade pretty much since the beginning of uh, since the beginning of human history um and and as you say like the, the medicinal qualities of spices the perceived medicinal qualities of spices was was one of the uh, was one of the, the the big attractions um from ancient times all the way all, all the way through um largely based on the uh, theories about human health being based on humors um the four inherent qualities that we're meant to have of uh uh, the, the food is meant to have like food was considered to be hot or cold or moist and or dry um and eating foods depending on their qualities could uh, could either be beneficial or dangerous depending on the state of your humors the, which were blood uh, yellow bile black bile and phlegm and any imbalance in those could, could could make you ill and spices were spices were generally considered to be hot and dry and you can sort of see why so which meant that they were good for working to counter problems that you know we would we would experience in northern europe of uh, sort of congestive illnesses and colds and things like that so so spices and cinnamon among them had that had that appeal um but that heat as well one of the other things that it that it benefited was uh, was any uh, problems with your sex drive <laughs> um and you know as has been true as is true now when um you know spammers trying to uh flog questionable pharmaceuticals to people um it's always been uh, the, the ability to solve those particular problems has always been a big uh, a big driver of commerce so um so cinnamon was a was certainly a yeah it was a popular product in 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 uh, in europe um from the ancient times all the way through uh, medieval the medieval era and it was it, you know it was the desire to have those uh to, to to get access to spices which were really were really expensive and um and were making a lot of money for the for the kind of italians and, and arabs who who were who were the main players in the spice trades it was it was the it was the desire to um to shortcut that spice trade that initially persuaded um spanish adventurers to to try and find a a, a route uh, the other way around the world to Asia, um, you know, we we think of the we think of the Spanish as 
you know people like Columbus as as being you know driven by a by a desire for gold or or conquest but um actually the primary the primary driver of that of that um of those voyages was was to find spices so so yeah that's where the conquistadors come in in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. That's insane. Uh, let's try an ingredient that we can grow ourselves and one that we didn't have to bring in. Strawberries. How did they go from a woodland berry to the preserve of the rich to standard British summertime food? <laughs> okay, well, yeah, this is another This is another really, um, really surprising story. I... I when I started looking at this, I, I had absolutely no idea. I had absolutely no idea. I think I'd always, I presumed that strawberries had always been immensely popular in, in Britain. You know, again, they're, like tea, they're, they're, you know, if you think of, if you think of the British summertime, um, strawberries and cream are, a, are, a, are a, just, you think of it as being a, a fundamental part of it. But um, the, the strawberries that are native to, to Europe, wild strawberries, um, aren't and and have never really been cultivated they're quite difficult to cultivate they're really small and sparse um uh, wood strawberries this is they 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 sort of hang low to the ground so they had a reputation for for being a little bit unhygienic um some wild strawberries are dioecious which means you need male and female plants um in order to propagate them and uh that that took a little bit of um understanding um so so Europeans never really cultivated strawberries um and they weren't really enjoyed or or um or respected in in the in the ancient world um in the medieval period and later some of them started to be moved in um some kind of um wealthy uh, individuals started uh, growing strawberries in their gardens um and and because wood strawberries are unquestionably delicious they were um uh, they were certainly eaten and enjoyed but just not on a you know they were never a crop they were never particularly um they they were never particularly prevalent uh, and as late as the as late as the 18th century if you look at the great sort of cookbooks of the 18th century people like Eliza Acton there's like not a mention of strawberries in there um but then this thing happened which i think tells you a lot about how food is how food has evolved and it and it relates to europeans arriving in the in the americas as we were just as we were just talking about so there was a there was a there was a uh, a north american strawberry called the virginian strawberry that was that was um brought back to europe in the early 17th century um and began to be grown a little bit these kind of large but quite bland fruits um and then in 1712 uh, a French guy called uh, Lieutenant Colonel Frezier, um, and and that name is important because um, because by one of those beautiful coincidences of history, Frezier is French for strawberry plant. So, yeah, Colonel Colonel Strawberry uh, made his way to um, uh, made his way to Chile. Um, he was a he was a French engineer and a spy, and whilst he was in Chile, he came across these Chilean strawberry plants. 
um, native to Chile, uh, brought some of them back. Uh, they too had these amazing fruits. When he brought them back and distributed them around around gardens in in Europe, they completely failed to um, they completely failed to fruit. The reason being that they were dioecious, and he just brought back the female plants. They had no male plants, uh. at all. <laughs> which is which is unfortunate and upset um, a lot of very excited um, uh, herbalists. Um, suddenly, some of these uh, some of these plants did start to fruit. Um, and then stepped in this guy called um, Antoine Nicolas Duchesne, who was like a uh, an underappreciated genius of the 18th century. Underappreciated because the thing that he specialised in happened to be soft fruits and not not some other other area of science with greater impact. <laughs> but he was he was he was able to prove that the um, that the reason that a few of these these um, strawberry plants were, were were fruiting was that they'd been. Um, these Chilean plants have been planted in the same area as the Virginian ones. And they, that these, that these two plants were able to cross pollinate. Um, and so these, the, these new fruits that were appearing were, were a hybrid of these Chilean plants and these Virginian plants. And those strawberries that appeared were unlike their parents, which were, were, were sort of frustratingly unisexual, unisexual. They were able to pollinate themselves. They were, they were hermaphrodite and very tasty and large and, and, and and grew very easily and suddenly the strawberry because of because of this complete accident of two plants from two different continents being trans, transplanted to a third continent and planted together because of that complete accident this new strawberry appeared that was that was perfect for cultivation um, and, and thanks largely in part to the British genius for, for kind of combining science and commerce um, through the 19th century. These, these strawberry plants were, 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 were bred and developed and propagated all the way around Europe and the rest of the world. And the British started eating, eating strawberries like there's no tomorrow. Um, uh, and, and, and they've been part of our diet, a massive part of our diet ever since. But but they're their um, evolution is uh, was a complete yeah like an accident of history but based based purely on our um, on our desire to bring foods back from other parts of the world there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One, one of the stranger ingredients um, was, okay, when, when I was reading the book, was the, was the eel. And it was a really interesting sub um, chapter, but 
the, the thing that came up came through was how did the eels life cycle shape our relationship to it as a foodstuff <laughs> well it, it did it did it did shape our relationship to it it also confused some of the greatest minds in history the the the, the sex life of the eel is one of the is one of the great mysteries of the universe like there, there are <laughs> there are like honestly like um relativity was um you know einstein was solving relativity the problems of relativity before people were solving the problems of the um of the eels of the eel sex life uh, sigmund freud spent quite a long time um as a as a as a young scientist trying to um trying to trying to find eels te- eel testicles um which a, a, a job that was that was so frustrating that he gave it up and instead focused on um uncovering the whole mystery of human sexuality instead which was easy which was easier to do but, so it's easier to yeah. find the testicles on a human being than it is on a yeah human. basically much easier much much easier um so but but it is it, it is it is fascinating like the eel is a is a it's just a bizarre creature so so i most people probably don't know this but all eels from what we from what we know all eels are basically spawned in the sargasso sea so in, in the caribbean um and they're um the 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 very very young eels make their way um the lava eels they're called they make their way across the oceans like vast vast oceans drawn by the currents to europe and when they arrive here they morph into 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 glass eels and then into when they hit the kind of estuaries they turn into what we know as elvers um they're, they're during during this process their their bodies change massively and they adapt from salt water to to fresh water and then they live in in in, in rivers and lakes and uh for 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 years if not decades like anything up to about 40 years sort of growing fatter and fatter and bigger and bigger some of them they, they can be massive they can they can they can also tra- travel across land to a certain extent they can come out and feed on the land something i knew nothing about um, but what's then completely mad, and I don't, I, I, I find it so hard to get my head around. Every year, one night in autumn, uh, when the moon's in its last quarter, there's a, a, a switch flicks deep within the eel, um, causing all of those adult, all of the adult eels who are ready to do so, to suddenly charge back downriver into the sea, swim all the way back across the atlantic to the sargasso sea they develop their sex organs along the way and then when they get to the sargasso sea they mate for the first and only time and then they die i mean this it's is... a way to go right <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah. But, but absolutely once. yeah chris is like once just once <laughs> but it's it's so bizarre so so there's no it, this really confused the ancients well for uh, it confused everyone until the 20th century because because people had never seen a baby eel like nobody had, nobody had ever nobody had ever seen a pregnant eel um what it means for for our relationship with it as a food is is a couple of things firstly it means that that once a year there's this kind of tide of of like of of, of the of the lava eels the the um uh, the thin heads and the glass eels and then the elvers coming into coming into europe and and there's a lot of there's a lot of cultures that really enjoy eating those like tiny tiny eels and sort of turning them into little uh cakes and frying them uh it was a big thing in the west country here for a long time um but it also means that once a year there's this rush of adult eels 
that are usually very good at hiding themselves once he has this rush of adult eels out of um out of the rivers back towards the sea where they can just be picked off in traps um and and eels are you know eel is an absolutely delicious food it's beautiful so so and it, it was it was such an abundant source of um of food in britain uh, it was so abundant it was used as it was used as uh, it was used as currency for a while. It, 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 you, know, you imagine you imagine later in the like eighteenth and nineteenth century in, in London, like eel was a hugely popular um, street food. Even though, ironically, they weren't um, they weren't English eels because the Thames was so polluted that eels couldn't live there anymore, and we had to import them from the Dutch. <laughs> but but what it means, what this life cycle means for eel as a food now. And this is where it gets a bit depressing is that because of their life cycle, every single eel that you eat is an eel that will never reproduce. So, so most, every eel dies a virgin that you eat is what we're saying. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, with kind of sustainable fishing. Most like if you want to if, uh, most um, fisheries for, for other types of fish are organized so that you don't interrupt their spawning season so that you allow, uh, you know, you don't you don't land. Uh, fish that are too young you, you you allow them to reproduce before you eat them basically that's impossible with eels if you eat an eel it will never have children um and the problem is that because of climate change primarily but also because of of um of the global appetite for for, for baby eels um and eel generally uh, eel populations are, are are in like rapid alarming decline um and so eel now if you want to eat eel that's now a kind of questionable choice in a way that would have seemed mad, uh, uh, you know, a couple of hundred years ago where that, when they were so completely abundant. Um, and, and we don't think of, you know, eel, eel isn't something that we eat a lot of anymore, uh, which is probably a good thing, but it's probably something we should eat even less of. I, I, I really liked um, the going back to sort of the, the early part of the life cycle was when the, uh, German newspaper put out a request for baby eels and the uh, Germans were sending in uh, intestinal worms they'd found in the eel that they'd eaten as an example of baby eels. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah, there was a monetary reward offered. And um, yeah, they had to put out another, they had to put out another, another uh, notice in the same newspaper saying, could people please stop sending them, um, uh, yeah, worms. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody did manage to send them a, a a pregnant eel, unsurprisingly. Well, so we do have go back through the history hack back back catalogs. There is a whole episode somewhere about Britain's obsession with eels. I think mainly it was talking about medieval Britain and stuff. Oh yeah, but um, it's making me gag. So let's. let's oh really? You're not not a fan of the eel? Oh no. Do you know what? I have like a massive seafood allergy um, and stuff. So anything that swims uh, makes me panic. Um, and yeah, I just uh, I think my exposure to eels has been demonised by the Little Mermaid. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just not a fan, basically. But let's talk about something else that we think of as completely British. And I bet it isn't. And that's the idea of us putting vinegar on our chips, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think the idea of putting vinegar on chips is definitely quite British. Um, but vinegar itself, like one of the one of the great things about vinegar is is how like universal a product it is um and and like, there's there's basically a clue in the name 
in a, in a way, vinegar in this in this country is a complete misnomer. Vin- vinegar comes from the French uh, van acre, like a sour wine, basically. So so vinegar vinegar is basically booze that has gone off. Um, it, it, so all all vinegar starts with alcohol. So it's basically uh, two two forms of, of fermentation that happen one after the other: alcoholic fermentation and then acetic fermentation. Yeah. But the alcoholic fermentation has to happen first. So you need, you need to start with alcohol before you can produce vinegar. So humanity, which has been drinking alcohol since, you know, pretty much since we could stand on two legs. Yeah. Um, we've been, we've been seeking ways to get ourselves off our faces. And so, um, uh, alcohol is being produced all around the world and therefore by accident constantly vinegar is being produced around the world as well and you can imagine for most people most of the time the appearance of vinegar was a massive massive disappointment um because what was meant to be delicious booze had suddenly turned into sharp undrinkable yeah what and, 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 yeah and, and most importantly non-alcoholic liquid yeah. <laughs> um but so, so you find vinegar all all the way around the world, but in the different parts of the world, the vinegars that you find are based on the are based on the, the the forms of alcohol that were produced there. So, so you know the the, uh, the Romans and, and and subsequently the French have made have made have made vinegar from grapes, have made wine vinegar. Um, in in the in uh, China and Japan, vinegar is based on rice rice wine quite a lot, and here. The traditional form of vinegar production has has, has come from um, from beer. So malt vinegar is a is is a byproduct of of beer production. There was there was actually a period when um, when people were trying to um, convince the British that actually we shouldn't call vinegar vinegar because it was a bit French um, and went with we're trying to go with alagar instead, like alegar. Is this um, when the Americans tried to rename? French fries, freedom fries. <laughs> yeah, a bit like that. A bit like that. The beef um, with the French, so changed the name. Yeah, but it didn't stick. It didn't stick. And I'm quite glad because I think Alagar, putting Alagar on your chips doesn't sound right, does it? Um, um, you want salt and Alagar on that, just doesn't. <laughs> no, That's no. Um, so, but uh, like event- eventually, like over time, the, the like the connection between the initial alcoholic drink and the vinegar has, has kind of moved on. Vinegar producers began to produce, set themselves up to specifically produce the vinegar that, that, um, that they were selling. So the, the, the kind of alcoholic fermentation part of it would be, uh, would just be built into the process. But, but yeah, for a lot, for a long, long time, it was all, you know, French wine vinegar was made with wine that had spoiled. Um, t- talking about the French and the lack of tea as well, um, they prefer the other stalwart, which uh, William Perry, uh, Perry sorry, describes as um, a drink that will intoxicate your brain. How has coffee suddenly got everywhere? I mean, it is literally everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's one of those things. So, so I just presumed, I'd, I'd gone through life just thinking, presuming that, you know, that tomatoes are Italian and, and like they're absolutely not um tomatoes are american mexican um i presume that coffee was south american because you know so much of the of the coffee uh drunk around the world comes from south america but it's absolutely not it's um uh coffee is essentially an arabian drink it it developed in um 
uh, it first grew in in Ethiopia, um, then crossed the Arabian Sea to to Yemen, where it was um, uh, Yemen on the Arabian Peninsula was the first place where coffee was was um, was drunk in a kind of form that we would be familiar with, kind of roasted and then and then steeped in hot water. Um, and it was actually the um, it, it it was it had a very close association with Islam for a long time. It was so, Sufi Muslims who who kind of propagated it around around the Muslim world because it helped with their uh, like Sufi Islam um, has uh, like built into the worship um, these uh, long uh, ceremonies in which in which uh, a, a kind of association with God is attempted through. Uh, repetition of, 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 of rhythm or, or, or prayer. Um, and they could go on for a long, long time. And coffee, because of its stimulating nature, could, 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 could help them do it long through the night. Um, so, uh, it was, it was kind of spread to, to, uh, by, to Cairo. And then, uh, in Cairo, it was picked up, um, and spread throughout the Ottoman Empire. So, so it was really a, it was a, it was a drink of, it was a drink of the Islamic world, um, that, that, yeah, made it made it to Europe in the in the uh, in the seventeenth century. Wasn't necessarily universally popular when it arrived. I think my, one of my favourite things is a, is a, a review of it from sixteen ten by a guy called uh, Sir George Sandys, who was a poet who called it black as soot and tasting not much, much unlike it. Um, but it was exotic. It was um, uh, it was stimulating. Like all those things we said about tea, it caught on in London big time. It caught on in, in in France. It caught on in Italy. Um, it was it was wildly appreciated. Um, at that point, it was still an Arabian drink. But as with as with so many of these things, it was the colonial powers who um, sort of turned it global. Um, there was money to be made from from coffee. Um, the Dutch the Dutch were the first to to like grow coffee outside of of Arabia. They grew it in Java, um, and the that Javanese coffee was really was really successful. Um, so then the colonial powers started taking coffee to to South America. They found it grew very well. Um, it was one of the, together with sugar, it was one of the um, it was one of the drivers of the Atlantic slave trade. The the, the plantations that, um, that that sprang up to uh, to to um, to quench the thirst for coffee in Europe, um, and then the US got in on the act. The US. Um, appetite for coffee was was immense quite quickly um uh so now yeah as you say it's now this like global drink it's hard to imagine a world without without coffee but yeah yeah until 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 the 16th century it hadn't been drunk anywhere beyond uh the islamic world Speaking of things that blew the minds of British people, this is like the most British thing ever as well mm. I hate 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 bananas I despise them <laughs> yeah I did see an account that made me crack up laughing because it's so British about the reception. I think it's the 17th century for bananas in Britain and how the rich people eating them cannot stop laughing at the fact that they look like dicks. <laughs> I mean, I can completely imagine that. Yeah, like a completely <laughs> British thing of all these people sitting around dinner tables, laughing and chortling away at the shape of a banana. Yeah. Yeah. It's a joke that will never grow old. Oh. Never. Um, let's move on to dessert and finish with dessert, though. Uh, how do we get from Neapolitan frozen wine to the joy of ice cream? Well, yeah, yeah. So ice cream, ice cream. So throughout throughout the book, 
the country that keeps popping up again and again is Italy. Like Italy, Italy has this really interesting place in the history of food because it's always been this kind of gateway. It's been this, it's been this transition point between so many of the kind of movements of, of, of both produce and ideas through the world. So obviously, you know, we had the, the Roman Empire was a, um, was a, was a great sort of globalizing force. And then during the medieval period, it was, it, uh, well, first of all, you had the, um, the, the Moorish invasion of Sicily. So, so these, these influences from the, the Levant appeared in Sicily and Southern Italy. And then, uh, and then the, the Italian city states were the great kind of conduit for trade with the, with, with the East. So the spice trade came through, came through Italy into Europe. And then later when, when the, when the, the Spanish had, um, had had uh, colonized much of uh, south america and central america the um uh, italy at that point was uh, southern italy was part of the habsburg empire so um so there were these connections with with spain so a lot of a lot of those american ingredients made their way to italy too so so italy is this kind of like transit point for food for food and ideas and ice cream is one of those is one of those uh, is one of those foods that kind of emerged from that kind of transfer um it 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 uh the, the the technology behind behind ice cream the 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 realization that you can that you can super cool ice by mixing ice with with salt or initially saltpeter which was a a mineral found in caves was um was discovered by arabs centuries ago um it was something that was done by the by at the mughal court um in in medieval india in about the in the 16th century, this idea that you could super cool things with this combination of ice and salt made its way to Italy and and to Naples in particular. And the first thing they tried they they tried it with was wine. Like, you know, why wouldn't you? Um, so there are there are accounts from the from the 16th century of Neapolitans freezing wine on hot summer days. The problem with that is that wine actually like alcohol doesn't freeze very well. You have to dilute it. But there was this other drink in in Italy at the time, which again had 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 come from from the east, and it was sherbet. Like the 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 Islamic world was full of under Islam, uh, drinking alcohol is forbidden, um, and uh, and so the pleasure of drinking and particularly cold drinks in in the Islamic world came from came from sherbets, which were like fruit and essential oils um, uh, mixed up with ice. To like beautiful cold refreshing drinks and the italians had adopted these sherbets the italian for sherbet was sorbete um the combination of these of these sherbets with this ice making technology produced these frozen these frozen desserts um that we now think of as, as sorbet um and then the leap from that to uh to, to doing the same with dairy is, yeah. is a logical one and is one that happened you know the, the 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 Italians for a long time were more into the fruity side of things, but but as as this idea moved its way through France and into England, and as we know, France and England are obsessed with anything made with like cow products. Um, the uh, the uh, the ice cream became uh, became a thing. Until very recently, this was incredibly expensive because you imagine how expensive ice is. Um, yeah. it, it's one of the things that. Uh, we take for granted now, but until refrigeration, if you wanted ice, you needed um, you needed a serious ice house 
I'm just um, thinking of Doc Brown's um, freezer in Back to the Future 3 in his bowl. They <laughs> sucked the entire barn. This has been brilliant. Do you know what, though? We have just had a visitor uh, turn up. We have the junior contingent of History Hack in the room. Hello, Ollie. Hi. Do you want to ask Mark about your what's your favourite food? And we'll see if Mark knows anything about it. Do you know anything about um Gosh. about chocolate? About chocolate? Wow. That's a really, like chocolate is actually another really, really interesting one. Yeah. Um, so chocolate is one of these, chocolate is one of these foods that came from South America. So nobody, nobody in Europe had, had come ac- across chocolate until, until the Spanish, uh, made their way to, to, to South America in the, in, in the, um, 16th century. Um, and when it first came here, um, for, for, for most of its history, it was just a drink. It was just hot chocolate. Mm. So, so hot chocolate was, was, um, was really, really popular. Again, it started out with something that was just for rich people because, uh, because it only grows in, in, in the Americas, um, or did then before it was spread a bit more widely. Um, but yeah, so hot chocolate was the, was the big thing. And it was only really, um, more recently in the 19th century that, um, that, sort of chocolate as you'd think of it like really sweet and uh and hard solid chocolate um began to develop but um but yeah it's another one of those things that you just presume's always been here but really hasn't been brilliant it never seems to last long in my house for some reason <laughs> yeah uh, knowing your children as i do chris yeah. i would have put money on him either saying chocolate or fried chicken so i, I thought it was gonna be chicken <laughs> <laughs> Mark, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much. We're going to leave Chris to try and explain uh, the procreation of eels to his son now. Um, because that <laughs> resulted in some wide eyes. Uh, and that is going to be a hilarious conversation. Happy birthday, Chris, by the Thank way. You. Enjoy that for the rest of the afternoon. Mark, this has been brilliant. Uh, the book is, uh, tell everyone what the book is called and how they can get a hold of it. So it's, it's Borough Market Edible Histories. Um, so uh, it came out in paperback uh recently the hardback's been around for, for for a year or so but the paperback is just out um and is in uh most most bookshops um but definitely um online quite widely so uh, well, yeah it's the uh, history hack bookshop as well so that people can click on the link and go get that from you as well it's brilliant thanks very much lovely no pleasure thanks. thank you for having me our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book this is just a small taster as a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 